This and every episode of Project 7 is proudly presented by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. With their exclusive Fibrex material, all of their windows are custom-made, high-performance, energy-efficient, and installed by certified installers. Log on today to request your free in-home estimate and take advantage of their buy one, get one 40% off sale with no money down, no interest, and no payments for 12 months with approved credit. Visit rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. That's rbamontana.com slash BOGO40. Project 7 contains explicit language, descriptions of violence, and discussion of suicide. It may not be suitable for all listeners. David Bergert, the guy who was chased by the cops, and yeah, still haven't found him. No body, no guy. Yeah. Supposed to be. Yeah. Welcome to Project 7. I'm Justin Franz. And I'm Andy Viano, and this is Episode 2, The Two David Burgerts. Go ahead and call the joke. David, go ahead and disbelieve it. You're about to start something that you have no idea what you're doing. It was the police department, local law enforcement, and local politicians, and kill them all. They were hoping to basically incite the federal government and kicking off this civil war. People are going to die or get hurt, and that's where the whole shit hits the fan. Yeah, he's definitely looking for a place to confront us here. I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. I received a call and I said, hey... David Berger just popped some shots off at them as a little county deputy, and it's like, okay, I'm on my way. And I really expected him to be laying on the ground, but as we cleared it, he was gone. At that point, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It's that mystery that hasn't been solved. It's the Amelia Earhart of our day in Montana, right? Where is David Berger? If he is alive and he's staying out of trouble, I just hope he does that. Should have done that in the first place. We wouldn't be here doing this story, but... I don't really care what people think about me, and I don't care what they write in the paper. Friend, you do anything you gotta do, okay? Hey, you do anything. You, you remember that this, whatever happens after this moment, will never go away unless it's positive. Surrounded by millions of acres of wild lands in far northwest Montana, the town of Kalispell is closer to the Canadian border, about 80 miles, than any interstate highway, and is as wild as wild country gets. Kalispell, in the surrounding area, called the Flathead Valley, is unmistakably beautiful, filled with pristine waters, dramatic mountain vistas, starry night skies, and the odd grizzly bear foraging for food. In the 1980s and 1990s, Kalispell was still a relatively small town, and most jobs were still in so-called blue-collar fields. But by the early 2000s, the Flathead Valley was experiencing dramatic growth, the kind that would eventually overwhelm the town and turn it into a major commercial hub for travelers to nearby Glacier National Park. Pam Carbonari, then Pam Kennedy, was Kalispell's mayor from 2001 to 2009. In 2001-2002, we were trying to struggle, I think, with the increased population that was coming into play and not having the uh, capacity to be able to handle new development at the rate that new development wanted to come in. That change that was happening, and as those people were coming into the community, 
I believe that we ended up with um, some of the old timers having a real issue with that because along with new people coming into the community and that increased population came some new ideas too environmental ideas and you know being a little bit more conscientious we started to see some of the traditional jobs go away like timber and logging the aluminum plant those type of um, environmental those type of jobs that affected the environment all of a sudden were going away and we had angry people in the community and uh, I think that they felt like their voice wasn't being heard. David Berger was released from jail in Alabama in 1989 after serving four years of a 12-year sentence he received for breaking into a trailer and stealing a sandwich. Soon after, David arrived in Kalispell to seek refuge in the wild country he always treasured and walked into that conflict between old and new that had been simmering even in those days, a decade before Pam Carbonari took office. David was just 25 years old when he was released from prison, but he already had plenty of baggage. He was a high school dropout, a failed ex-Marine, and an alcoholic. He dreamed of being a hero, of having a higher calling, but this was his reality. And in his new Montana home, he mostly floated from bar fight to bar fight. According to one story, he first showed up on law enforcement's radar after drunkenly stealing a horse. But like Jamie Rogers' piece for the Missoula Independent was titled, there really did seem to be two David Burgards living in the Flathead Valley. There was one who was sullen and temperamental. He fought constantly and appeared to delight in irritating police officers at every opportunity. And then there was the other David, who his friends say was thoughtful and compassionate and who was always willing to lend a hand to someone in need. People who are close to David describe him as a great friend. From what I've heard, David sounded like a friend who probably cared a little too much about his friends. Like maybe he was a little inappropriately protective of them, but was a protector. And the people who were close to him, whether or not uh, you, you find them credible, will across the board say that he had their backs and they all wish nothing for the best for him. Jason Larson moved with his family from California to Kalispell in the late 1990s, and his dad would join a local Alcoholics Anonymous group. There, Jason's dad met David Berger, who had achieved sobriety, gotten married, and appeared at long last to have his life on track. Dad and Dave met probably 97, like the year after we moved here. And became really good friends after that. What's that relationship like? I mean, did you guys go out on hunting trips together? Do you go uh, yeah, fishing, uh, hanging out at his house, some welding projects. My dad used to own a scrap metal business in Southern California. We all called him Diesel Dave. He worked on trucks. He had his own boat rental. I worked the summers with Dave a couple of summers in a row, um, running jet skis for him. He had some people that were exchange student families. So I'd go out and these kids didn't know anything about riding. So I would take them riding on uh, jet skis across the lake and stuff. And I got paid pretty handsomely for that as a teenager and getting a hundred bucks a day to go ride around with pretty girls on a jet ski was uh, pretty, pretty beneficial as far as I was concerned. He's a very big, a big man, you know, very, uh, very funny, just uh, with women, very flirtatious, you know, kind of the same personality I had, 
but he was always picking on you or picking on somebody or making jokes. Um, very happy person, generally. I knew Dave a little bit before he quit drinking and after he quit drinking. So I knew my dad before he quit drinking and after he quit drinking. And people that are like that fill that void with something. Um, Dave most generally filled that void with helping people. Um, that made him feel good. Law enforcement in the Flathead Valley would say David filled that void with something very different. The man they knew was constantly on their radar and in their way, both before and after he was sober. David got a DUI in the mid-1990s and fled on foot from Kalispell Police. He would grapple with customers at his boat and snowmobile rental business in Kalispell, and perhaps it was that picking on somebody mentality that led a lot of people who crossed paths with him to find David an annoying loudmouth, always looking for a fight. Chuck Curry, the Flathead County undersheriff in the late 90s and early 2000s, saw plenty of David in those days. Well, he, um, he started appearing on our radar fairly frequently. Was one of those guys that was always confrontational with other people, uh, with law enforcement, anytime we'd have an interaction. And he got to eventually just be one of those frequent flyers that we deal with all the time. I can best describe him as a bully. He He's just one of those guys that can't get along well with a lot of people. Pushy, confrontational, argumentative, calls from his interactions with other citizens, and certainly any time we interacted with him, the uh, the interactions were not positive. Dave Lieb, another officer in the Flathead County Sheriff's Department, also got quite familiar with David Bergert. We dealt with him on a regular basis. He was just rude to his customers and hard to get along with. And uh, the first time I met him, I went down there to because someone had called and said that Dave wasn't releasing their vehicle. He had uh, said there was a mechanic's lien on it, and I went down there. He was one of those guys that... You could hate within five minutes, easily. He, he was a very confrontational, arrogant, I mean, like I said, I've, I've maybe met two people that I just hated within a minute of meeting him, and he was one of them. Yeah, yeah he was not a guy that you could get along with. I, I never knew anybody that actually got along with him. The reality, of course, is that David was probably somewhere in between, sociable and generous to his friends, angry and annoying to law enforcement, who he saw mostly as his enemy. And if the cops were his enemy, Flathead County Sheriff Jim DuPont was David Bergert's nemesis. As a top law enforcement official in the county, DuPont drew blame from David over the many battles that were to come between him and the sheriff's office. In February 2002, after David was arrested, he told the FBI that DuPont and a pair of other officers were terrorists who should be investigated. In court filings years later, Bergert claimed that he had written authorities many times about DuPont with regard to crimes being committed by his deputies and the death of innocent persons. Among the first major confrontations between DuPont and David was his attempt to join the county's search and rescue team in the mid-1990s. David sought joining the North Valley search and rescue team as his latest opportunity to prove his worth to his community and be a hero to endangered hunters, hikers, skiers, and others who get lost in the great outdoors. But David would never get to fulfill that dream. Long before he became infamous, Dave Bergert actually had joined our search and rescue organization. In those days, they were a little more of a separate agency. 
their background checks weren't great. We did a background check and found out that Mr. Bergert was actually a felon, convicted felon out of another state. So I actually, my first interaction with him, I knew him a little bit through search and rescue, but my first interaction with him was to uh, remove him from search and rescue because of his prior felony. Based upon his criminal history, we didn't think it was appropriate to be on search and rescue. And why is that? Um, we do that routinely. One, it's affiliated with the law enforcement agency. And two, I think that most people would agree they don't want felons out searching for them having access to their homes, their kids. We just think it's pretty important to keep it clean. And that's why we do the checks on people, just as if they were working for a law enforcement agency. The rejection from the search and rescue team, which stemmed from his bumbling burglary in Alabama, burned at David. It was reminiscent of his failure to remain in the Marine Corps, and it strengthened his mistrust in authority, who he saw as unfairly denying him his shot. It was one of a handful of moments in David's life that had a profound effect on his future actions. No one knew it at the time, but the David of the future, the one who would shoot at law enforcement officers on the top of a mountain in Missoula County, and the one who would be accused of plotting mass assassinations in the Flathead Valley can be traced back to moments like this one, moments like this that shaped his worldview. You know, in the years that followed, I always wondered about that, whether or not that just made him angry enough that that's where he developed his hatred for all of us. It's possible. I don't know. I mean, we never had that conversation, so tough to say. But I think regardless of whether or not we'd have removed him because of his criminal history, I think he would have still not been a great guy. David now had an axe to grind and a target for his frustration. He was convinced he was being treated unfairly and that forces around him were conspiring against him. It was a perspective he shared with a number of fellow Alcoholics Anonymous members, and they eventually formed their own group, one that David helped start. And over time, the group began to talk about quite a bit more than their sobriety. The members loved the outdoors, they had an interest in survivalism, and they shared tactics and tips for the world once society fell apart, and they freely exercised their Second Amendment rights. Their meetings soon became social gatherings, and their ideology settled into the far right wings of conservatism with a strong anti-government bent. Eventually, the group would drop the AA moniker and come to call itself by a new name, Project 7. Once again, Missoula-based reporter Jamie Rogers. I mean, I am pretty confident saying that if David had been accepted on the search and rescue team, and I'm not saying he should have been, but if he had been, Project 7 never would have happened. Because he really wanted to be a part of an organization. I mean, his whole life is about trying to join organizations that take care of people, you know? I just don't, I don't really think that the anti-government stuff was the, the lead idea. I really don't. There's a part of me, and this is, this is extrapolating maybe too much, but there's a part of me that just wonders, you know, these are guys are in an AA group together. They probably find a lot of support in one another. And there's a part of me that wonders, like, if these anti-government ideas were the thing that brought them together, or if it was just something that they could all talk about and continue to sort of support, like a, a framework for them to spend time with each other. 
So in the late 1990s, this was David's life. He was battling with some cops, he did not trust the government, and he loved his guns, but he had generally kept his nose clean. He had stopped drinking and he was married. He owned a business and he had his friends. He and his wife filed for bankruptcy in 1998, but otherwise the 90s were a relatively quiet decade for David Bergert, who had reigned in the chaos that had defined his life up to that point. The next decade would not be so quiet. Project 7 and all of the journalism that comes from the Flathead Beacons newsroom in downtown Kalispell is made possible in part because of contributions from members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. What is the Flathead Beacon Editors Club? The Editors Club was created in 2018 as a way for our readers to support the important work we do. Remember, each and every issue of the Flathead Beacon and everything at flatheadbeacon.com is free, but that doesn't mean it's free to produce. In fact, good quality journalism is expensive. But for as little as $5 a month, Beacon Editors Club members can help make our work possible. And while $5 doesn't sound like much, taken together, those contributions can do a lot. Like help us crisscross Western Montana for over 15 months to bring you this podcast. And being a member of the Editors Club comes with some great perks, like bonus episodes of Project 7 and one of our popular Glacier National Park posters. Want to learn more? Head over to BeaconEditorsClub.com today and sign up. Welcome back to Project 7. Bob Sesnick was not a member of the group that was now calling itself Project 7, but he shared much of the group's ideology, particularly their mistrust of law enforcement. Sesnick met David Bergert through AA, and in January of 2001, he was on his way to the nearby town of Columbia Falls, planning on going dancing when he saw the flashing lights of a police car in his rearview mirror. A few weeks earlier, Bob said a police officer in Missoula County had punched him during an altercation, and on this night he was in no mood to be punched again. So Sesnick did not pull over, instead driving to David Bergert's house on Trumbull Creek Road and going inside as David blocked the front door from the highway patrolman who had been following him. David tells Bob to get in the house, and the cops come up to the front door and tries to go in the house, and David says, you can't come in. And you can hear him saying, this guy is afraid of police. What ultimately happens, and there's no sign of struggle, there's no, none of the, there's at least one other officer, but I think maybe another uh, vehicle shows up and there's two more officers there. Uh, Nobody reports seeing this, but one of the officers says David punched him. We spoke to Bob Sesnick, now 82 years old, about that night, and his recollection for the most part matched up with the reported story. He said he heard an argument at David's front door and came rushing over when he saw two highway patrolmen holding Bergert's arms behind his back and a sheriff's deputy with his fist pulled back, ready to throw a punch. Sensing his friend was in trouble, Bob jumped on the deputy and was pepper sprayed. That ended the conflict and the officers left without making an arrest, but they promised one would be coming, and soon enough, 
Both Bob and Dave were charged with assault and obstructing an officer and awaited their day in court. Here again is Jason Larson, who now in 2001 is a member of Project 7, despite still being just a teenager. Uh, it's a ridiculous situation, right? Why are the cops really... There's stuff that... Real crime's going on. So because of the prior incidents that have happened before, between the sheriff's department and Bob Sesnick, he didn't feel comfortable. Well, the state constitution says that if you do not feel safe, that you can drive to wherever you want feeling safe as long as you do so without breaking the laws, right? So that's what he was doing. He felt safer at Dave's house than he did getting pulled over by the sheriff. But some of these guys had true, whether they were founded or not, fears that the cops were out to kill them or harm them. And Dave was one of those. He literally felt like the sheriff's department was out to kill him. That's an actionable fear, okay? So we have to think, you're getting arrested by a guy that has complete power and authority over you, which not constitutional, but he does. So he has a gun. You don't have a gun. He can kill you. That's an actionable threat. You're feeling that fear, whether it's, it's founded or not, and they have the ability to do it. So kind of a founded fear a little bit, right? You're armed and they're armed or they're not. You're not armed and they are. So to me, Bob feared and that's when stuff really, that's probably when start stuff really started because they went into Dave's house without a warrant. They really start, that's when the real push Real push and shove back and forth started was with Bob Sesnick. Yeah. In David's mind, the ordeal with Bob Sesnick that night only confirmed his paranoia. The cops who had denied him a spot on the search and rescue team had now come all the way to his house to antagonize him. They were only chasing Bob in the first place because he had headlights that were tinted a bit too blue, and all that led to a fight and arrest. Law enforcement, though, wasn't buying any of what Dave was saying. There had been no major incident with police in years, but just about every cop and sheriff's deputy in the county had at one point come across a belligerent David Burgert for one reason or another. And on the night in question, Bob Sesnick could have just pulled over, and David could have just not let him in his house when he showed up with the police on his tail. And while confrontations with David to this point were not violent, they were frequent enough and tense enough to teach officers that David was not someone to treat lightly. Here's Kalispell Police Department Sergeant Rick Parker, who had a number of meetings with David Berger. When you're an officer on the street, you're cautious anyway. But if, if you know there's a problem with a certain person, you, you are a little more cautious than you are normally. You know, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're hiking in the woods, you know, you, you try to be cautious about bears. But if you know there's bears there, you may be a little more noisy or you may be a little more cautious. And it's, it's the same thing. It's the, the, if you know that there's a known threat of whatever kind, you, you, you unless you're just kind of brain dead, <laughs> you, you treat it with, with a, uh, you treat it differently. In the months after Bob Sesnick came to David's house to take refuge from the police, he stayed out of trouble. But David would butt heads with law enforcement once again later that year. On Thanksgiving Day, November 22, 2001, a man and his 12-year-old son went hunting in Olney, Montana, a small town about 45 minutes northwest of Kalispell. 
A flash snowstorm hit later that day, and Friday morning, when no one had heard from the pair, a search began. David wanted to help. The elder man emerged from the woods Friday evening, disoriented and hypothermic, and he told authorities he was forced to leave his exhausted son in a tree well while he went searching for help. He described where he thought the boy was, and David, who was intimately familiar with the area from his own snowmobile rides there, was certain he could find him. But law enforcement officers, who now knew David well, and who had already denied his application to work for the search and rescue team, refused David's offer to help. Two days later, on Saturday, November 24th, the body of the 12-year-old boy was recovered from the tree well where his father had left him, now covered in two feet of snow. That moment, Phyllis told his mom told me that David called her the next day, and in her words, he was crying like a baby. Um, I think that this really, really hit him hard. Uh, And I imagine for him it was a combination of, you know, really wanting to protect people, um, but also just this, I imagine, a really frustrating feeling of why will you not let me be the guy I know I can be, which is a person who can help people, protect people. Just three days after the boy's death, an attorney from Missoula was in Kalispell with an associate, trying to track down a man to deliver legal papers. By nightfall, the two men had given up the search and were heading home, so they handed the papers off to David, who occasionally did work for them. But on their way out of town, now without the papers in their possession, the lawyer and his colleagues spotted the vehicle they had been looking for and began to follow it. Kalispell Police Department Sergeant Rick Parker was one of three officers on duty that night. A guy had called in saying that he was, he was being stalked, being followed by some guys in the vehicle. That, I, that call was relayed to me, I think, from dispatch. And I was able to get out on the street, and he was telling me, I think we were going through dispatch, he was on the phone with them, he was telling me where he was and what vehicle he was driving. Because I wanted to establish that this vehicle really was following him, number one, so I had him come up, told him where to turn. He turned, and he'd give me a vehicle description, I think. Here comes the other vehicle, pulls in, turns right where he does, keeps following him. So I pulled him behind it, pulled it over. Parker and the lawyer's vehicle pulled off to the side of the road in downtown Kalispell, next to a Catholic church. By this time, the lawyer had already been in contact with David and asked him to meet them at the scene and bring the papers with them to prove to the police that they had actually been attempting to serve papers and were not stalking someone. I was in the midst of investigating what was going on when David showed up. It was pretty quick. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how long, but it is, I think it was quick enough that, that you could assume that they were in contact with David at, the same, at that time because he showed up pretty quick right after that. I don't think I got very far into my contact with him before he was there, as I remember anyway. He was just, he was part of the, the guys, the team, their team, whatever they were, that were following this guy and he just decided, you know, he was going to be there and he wasn't going to leave. 
you know, it was, you know, his, his right to be there if, if that's what he was thinking. You know, I can't tell you why he decided to do what he did. But but he pulled up, got out of his vehicle and stood there. And 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 I told him he needed to leave and he wouldn't leave. As soon as the traffic stop began, the lawyer pulled out a video camera and started filming the encounter. The lawyer is in the passenger seat, and he can be seen there talking to another officer, Doug Overman, who at this point is only four months out of the police academy. The grainy footage is now almost 19 years old, and the audio quality reflects that. Seconds later, with the camera now pointed to the driver's side, Rick Parker whips his head around suddenly, and the camera shoots back to Doug Overman. He has spotted David Berger, and Parker has a message for a third officer, Kevin McCarvel, who has just arrived on the scene. Officer Doug Overman. I was on the other side of the car, and it was a pickup, and so I didn't have a great sight line. I didn't even know David was there, and I didn't hear the radio traffic asking for backup because he was there. Uh, Sergeant Parker obviously saw him at the time and asked for backup and had given him commands to leave. Um, it didn't seem like a long time before I realized that someone was being addressed ultimately over on the other side and then was taken into custody and we continued with the objective of our, of our particular stop at that point. They just arrested David. Okay. We need those papers. Okay, David's got them? Yes, he does. Okay. Before David is taken into custody, Rick Parker leaves the driver's side of the pickup and he walks across the street to engage with David. Oh, already got it there, huh? Our papers are getting Well, I'd do him, but I just walked into the papers for him. Oh. Based so. on the video's timestamps, it's less than a minute between when Rick Parker tells Kevin McCarville if he won't leave, arrest him, and when David is pepper sprayed. Now, less than three minutes after he arrived on the scene, David is handcuffed, his eyes are squinting, and his head is shaking, and he spits once on the ground as officers lead him away, while the conversation between Rick Parker and the Missoula attorney continues. Yes, okay, yeah. it's all there. David would just listen to me for once in his life. He had a lot less. Officer, is yeah. there any way that I can intervene on David's behalf? He was trying to help us serve these papers on a very okay. suspect. All right. He's a he's a licensed. This is a licensed. I am officer. I am real familiar with David. David has a real bad habit of interfering with us and the performance of our job. That's why I asked him to leave because he just he won't do anything reasonably. Okay. I okay. Him to come down. I understand. That's fine. If he would have done what I asked him to, we could have talked at some point. But I don't want him, David, with his history behind my back while I'm on a traffic stop talking to you folks, okay? Can I intervene now on his behalf? Well, you can probably post bond for him. He's Two days after this incident, David will write an email to a militia listserv and explain his side of what happened. He tells of his job as a process server, the reason he had the papers with him to serve, and that he arrived on the scene not long after the lawyer was pulled over. He then writes... A Kalispell cop named Kevin McCarville walked up to me and said, get your hands out of your pocket. I responded, why? What's up? I was then pepper sprayed from about 10 inches away with my mouth open and eyes open. I inhaled a large volume due to the shock. On November 30th, three days after his arrest, David called into a radio show in Kalispell and repeated his explanation. Parked in the, I don't know if it's a driveway or alley, I don't remember. 
uh, right by Johnson's, but I was on the opposite side of the street. And I get out of my vehicle with the paperwork in my hand, so I can, when they, I didn't go over there, I, the cops were writing a ticket for something. And about 15 to 20 seconds later, two more cops show up. The first city cop kind of walks quickly right up to me. He goes, get your hand out of your pocket. And I said, what, 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 why, why do I got to get my hand out of my pocket? I'm immediately pepper sprayed in the face. The canister's emptied. Can I ask you why you didn't take your hand out of your pocket? Um, I wanted to know what I was being arrested for or what was going on. I, I really wanted them to see the paperwork and let them know that I'm here doing a job. Back on November 27th, the pepper spray was just the first of the evening's indignities. After he's pepper sprayed, David is taken for a short drive to the Kalispell Police Department to be processed. In security camera footage, David is still stinging from the pepper spray. He's squinting, and his hands are cuffed behind his back. Hey! I need a fit, and I need to get the shit off my face. I need some medical treatment now. I understand that. Yeah, I can tell. A short while later, David has stood up, and two officers hold him near the edge of the camera frame. David is agitated, complaining about his rest and his treatment. At one point, David suddenly jolts to his right, and action law enforcement would later claim is David attempting to spit on an officer. That officer then grabs what looks like a hood and places it on top of David's head, as Kalispell Police Chief Frank Garner walks on the screen. I cannot breathe. Well, you sound like you're breathing to me, Dave. You're breathing the pepper spray, Frank. Okay, Dave. What? We take. Settle down. Or you're going to end up going to the ground. Take this fucking hood up over my mouth anyway. No, settle down. When you settle down, then we'll get to it, okay? Sit down, Dave. That's the bench right behind you. Sit down. There's a bench there. You need to relax. The November incident's what really pushed him over the edge. He really felt at that point, like, Dave got pulled over way more than your average guy should have got pulled over. You know what I mean? Like, he was on the list, you know. Not that there's a real list, but he was on a few cops, sheriff's radar that just, you know. And then Dave would whisper, I had sex with your wife last night to the cop and get him all fired up. And it was just a back and forth thing. Like, he had an authority issue, obviously. And they had a problem with him being a big old grizzly bear of a man, and it was just a wing measuring contest, I guess. Four months after the night David was pepper sprayed, he would once again be inside a jail cell. But this time, he would not get out for nearly a decade. The events of November 27, 2001, were a dramatic turning point in David Burgert's life, and it was a moment that had been built on a year of confrontation with local law enforcement. But something else was brewing too. David Burgert's group, Project 7, was in transition in 2001. What had started as a small group of friends had turned into a proud militia, arming itself for protection and seething at what they believed was the heavy-handed government holding them down. And after that night in 2001, David Burgert was a man at war.
next time on Project 7. Good morning, you're on the edge. Well, John Stokes, how are you? Hello, let's get it from the horse's mouth. The Briefly. Militia people don't have opinions. They, uh, they stand up for whoever. Cops have a really hard job, but you're the boss of the cops. It would have just been a really easy thing for you to not have done what you did. Project 7 was a disaster awareness, a patriotic group, defend life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What we're looking for is the two people out of those hundred who are the ones who are willing to pick up a gun or detonate an explosive and take another person's life. When government allows our military to be ordered and controlled by foreigners, then turns their tanks loose on U.S. citizens to murder and destroy, you bet your constituents get upset. I will not back down. I will not give in. I will not resign. Stand strong, fellow patriots. Dale, it is the lifeblood of fish. It is the lifeblood of farmers. And tonight, both have their water. If you humble yourself and get down on your knees and yes, sir, yes, ma'am, them to death and tell them you love them and they are God's next best people, that they'll probably not write you a ticket. Project 7 is a production of the Flathead Beacon in Kalispell, Montana. The show is written, produced, and edited by Justin Franz and me, Andy Viana. The editor-in-chief of the Flathead Beacon is Kellen Brown, and our managing editor is Myers Reese. Music in this episode is composed by Jeremy Reinbolt and performed by Nick Spear, Rebecca Spear, Halliday Quist, Jesse Auman, and Jeremy Reinbolt. Marco Forcone is the audio engineer for the Project 7 theme. Our ad music is Blippy Trance by Kevin McLeod and used via Creative Commons License 4.0. The Project 7 logo was designed by Dwayne Harris, and our website was built by Patrick Sappington and Pierce Ware. Special thanks to Flathead Valley Community College, the Montana Human Rights Network, the University of Montana School of Journalism, JusticeProductions.net, and the entire staff of the Flathead Beacon. And a reminder that this and every episode of Project 7 is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson, the complete replacement division of Anderson Windows. To learn more, visit rbamontana.com. That's rbamontana.com. Project 7 is made possible by members of the Flathead Beacon Editors Club. Member contributions help pay for all of the Beacon's reporting and help secure our future as the Flathead Valley's most trusted source of local, independent journalism. Members also get access to great perks, including weekly bonus episodes of this podcast. Check out our website at project7pod.com to see documents, videos, and more related to this and every episode. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Project7Pod. If you know the whereabouts of David Berger or want to get in touch with us for any other reason, send an email to project7 at flatheadbeacon.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.